once again, brother. How are you on this beautiful day? I'm just doing wonderful, 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 man. How are you doing? Uh, doing well. I'm a little tired. This week was Memorial Day week. So if you guys are listening to this sometime in the future, this was recorded at the towards the end of the week of Memorial Day. And every year for Memorial Day, well, this last year I didn't, but this year I started up again. There is a Memorial Day workout done in honor of Lieutenant Michael Murphy. He was a Navy SEAL who died in the line of duty. He laid down his life so that his team could live. He went out into an open area, called in air support to get his men the support they needed and get them the extraction they needed. And the only way he could get radio reception was to go out into the middle of a field to call it in. So he exposed himself and was shot down knowing he would die. He went out there knowing he would die to save the life of his friends. And every year on Memorial Day, there's a workout done um, in honor of him. And it's done in CrossFit gyms and it's been opened up to other gyms across the country. You don't have to be a CrossFit affiliate to do it. And it's a fundraiser that goes to a scholarship that was set up in his name and his honor for the children of veterans that have died in combat. And the workout is a one mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and then another one mile run. And I did 1.6 of them. Because I went Monday morning to do it with our group at our gym. Well, 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 pat yourself on the back. Well, I would if I could lift my arms. That's the problem. (laughs) Still a little sore from it, but... I lifted a um, lot of hamburgers and hot dogs. Oh, I did plenty of that afterwards. Um, Yeah, but when I went to do it with our friends that morning and with our crew at the gym, um, I drank an energy drink as a pre-workout and it didn't sit well on my stomach, so I only made it through six rounds. And was sick to my stomach, tried to puke and rally, couldn't do it. So I was mad. I was furious because I've trained for this. Anyway, I went back up two hours later, started all over and did the whole thing again. So I did 1.6 Murphs. And today has been the first day since then that my legs aren't sore. But it was it was a fun experience. It was good being able to go in there and knock it out. You really feel good about yourself. So yeah, I'm going to brag a little bit. I did 1.6 Murphs. Um, I've also been really looking forward to doing part two, part one of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, where we talked about the um, divorce certificate in our last episode has been well-received. We've gotten good feedback on that. We still haven't had very many questions come in. So we really want you guys to send us your questions because we want to end this series with a Q&A to answer any questions that you may have. So please send those um, questions to us. We'd love to have it. Um, But today we're going to carry on that conversation about divorce in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the reasons for divorce. And also we're going to begin with discussing some of the prohibitions. So before we get into that, we need to talk about um, what we discussed in the last episode. We need to summarize that very briefly. So I'll let you go ahead and take that summary if you don't mind. Okay. So for the next 45 minutes, we're just going to summarize what we discussed last week. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah. You're not going to get sound bites on this. You're not going to get little, you know, cursory five minute discussions. Like you said last time, we're getting into the weeds, but we will make our summary quite brief so we can move forward. So, so number one, keep in mind that we are starting from the old Testament. We're starting from the beginning. We talked about last week, how, when it comes to the subject of marriage, divorce and remarriage, that most people just look at their own culture that they're currently living in, and then they read Matthew nineteen nine or First Corinthians seven or Luke sixteen eighteen, and then they say, "Well, this is what Jesus said," and then they apply it based upon their 
current understanding of those terms and those words without much context of even those specific passages, much less much context of the the Jewish understanding and the social and literary context that led up to Jesus talking about the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage as well as Paul. So we, we talked about the importance of starting from the beginning, and so we're still today going to be looking at from a Jewish perspective, what did the law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, what did it look like for men and women living during that time when it came to marriage, divorce, and remarriage? So last week we talked about how divorce always dissolved the marriage. Marriage is a contract. It's a covenant and it's a contract. It's not some sort of mystical, um, you know, woo-woo kind of this in you know you, you just this special kind of invisible bond it's just it, it's it literally is a a contract it is a covenant it is something that you agree to it is something that you're saying you're going to do and that's what that's what marriage marriage is and divorce always dissolved the marriage so if someone was married and they ended up divorcing it dissolved that marriage they were not still mystically married in the eyes of god or anything like that it dissolved the marriage only the woman would need the divorce certificate because during that time, the man could marry as many women as he wanted to, but the woman could only be involved with one man at a time. But as long as she was divorced and had her certificate, she could marry another man. But as long as she was still married to a man, then she was bound to him for life. The only way that... Uh, she could she would no longer be bound to him is if he died or if he divorced her. And then finally, we talked about how the divorce certificate was vital because it freed the woman to marry another man, but it also protected her and her future assets where she could not be reclaimed by her former husband. And we talked about how when you contrast that protective law with other laws with different cultures during that time, you see that the woman was not protected. The woman was not protected like she would have been under the Jewish law. And so this was actually not, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, was not a command to divorce. It was a command to give a divorce certificate when you did divorce. And that's very yeah, important was, to understand. Yeah, it was one of those things that described the process that needed that needed to be executed in order to achieve that end. If you're going to divorce, this is how you do it. And that is what was commanded, the process. Whenever you go through this process, you must give a divorce certificate. Reading into that, as, as some of the Jews did in um, later times, they read that as a demand to divorce as evidenced by the conversation that they had with Jesus. And we'll get into that when we get to the New Testament. But divorce itself wasn't commanded here. Giving the certificate was. That was an absolute requirement. You were not divorced if you did not give that certificate. And from a man's perspective, if you just wanted to divorce your wife, like in, in Islam, there was a case tried um, a few years ago in Dubai where a man divorced his wife over text. Under Islamic law, if you tell your wife three times you divorce her, well, that's a legally binding divorce. And it's the first time a woman had ever been divorced by her man by text. She was late bringing him his tea. So he texted her and said, you were late with the T, I divorce you. And she sued him. They went to court and they, they upheld it. They found that it was valid. Well, under Jewish law, you couldn't just cast your wife out. You couldn't just send her out and send her away. If you did, she was still, um, or you were still as a man required by law to meet her needs. And we're going to get into some of that today. But if you gave her that divorce certificate, that 
protected her, but the Jews construed that later as uh, something that protected the man. But that, like I said, that's a conversation we're going to get into as, as this unfolds. Yeah, but so, the divorce certificate is what was commanded, not divorce itself. Yeah, so let's go ahead then and now jump into, first of all, prohibitions for divorce under the Jewish law. And there's really only two specific Jewish prohibitions. Now, there is a general prohibition of divorce we're going to look at next. But right now, we're just going to look at really the only two specific Jewish prohibitions on divorce. And when I say specific, being case law specific. And those are found in Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 21. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read those. I'm just going to really summarize them because that's not a big part of what we want to discuss. But I do at least want to mention it since we are trying to be as exhaustive as possible. So that's Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 21. And here's what you have. The first prohibition is that a man could not divorce his wife once he married her and falsely accused her of not being a virgin. So if a, if a man was married, he married his wife, and on their the night of their marriage consummation that, yeah, he came out and said, Hey, she's not a virgin. And he falsely accused her. Then he would not be able to ever divorce her. If indeed she was a virgin, because uh, clearly he was trying to just get rid of her. He was trying to shame her, uh, trying to bring a bad name. And if he, if he would have divorced her, it would have been extremely hard for her to have been able to find another spouse. Not that she wouldn't have been able to, legally or lawfully, but that she, it would have been very difficult because the rumor would have been, Hey, I heard that she really wasn't a virgin. And, and, and by the way, at that point, he would have already had slept with her anyway. So she wouldn't have been a virgin either, even after that time. So the first one is that if a man falsely accused his wife of not being a virgin, and it was found out that he lied, he could not put her away. The second prohibition is found in this same context, and it is if it's a little bit different, and it's if a man had sex with a virgin who was not betrothed, then he had to marry her and not divorce her because he took away her virginity. So pretty similar. These these two are kind of similar. They're from different perspectives, but they're they're pretty similar. And both of them have to do with once again protecting the woman. And by the way, there is an exception even to this in Exodus twenty two sixteen through seventeen. And that is if her father did not want them to marry, then what's called the bride price, it would have been paid by the man and they would have not had to be married. So if if the, the father said, wait a minute, no, I, I don't want this jerk. <laughs> I don't like this man. I don't want him marrying uh, my daughter. Then he would just have paid the father the bride price and then he wouldn't have had to marry her. And uh, of course, the woman would, would still have been single. So you... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, as, and as I understand it, that concept of a bride price is also related to that first reason that's enumerated in Deuteronomy 22, that a man couldn't divorce his wife if he falsely accused her of not being a virgin. Because once the bride price was paid, what that bride price was, is it was a special account that was set aside to secure that man's daughter's financial future. Like that money was given to the man. And as I understand it in that culture, they would take that money, they would set it to the side so that if something happened to the wife's husband, well, then her father had that bride price that he could give back to her as an inheritance to her children and to give to her to help her navigate life without a husband until she could remarry. So if a man married a wealthy woman and he just wanted that bride price, that bride price would be forfeited if adultery was committed. If she committed adultery on her husband, well, then he was able to keep that bride price. He was able to receive that back to himself. 
So if he wanted to receive that back and he just, you know, wanted to have his jollies or whatever else, this was another thing that protected him or rather protected her from being taken advantage of. Yeah. And this is what's interesting when you look at these passages, because it really has, it's not much to do with divorce. It really, and that's why I'm careful of even calling it prohibitions for divorce, because it's really not so much a prohibition against divorce as it is just a way to protect the woman. That's what it comes down to. It's a way to, to protect the woman and her assets, very similar to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So that's really all I'm going to say about that. If, if you do want to learn more, feel free to reach out to us. But that is just almost a side point. And I do find it very interesting that you see that these laws were put in place not to not to oppress, but to actually protect. And that's something that we need to recognize. So so now, now you get in really to kind of the general prohibition of divorce. And this is the one everybody knows. You may not know nothing about the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but everyone knows Malachi 2.16. God hates divorce. I've heard this quoted. I have heard people preach whole sermons about it, and they really don't say much other than Malachi 2.16 and just keep repeating it that God hates divorce, God hates divorce. But the question is, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of divorce does God hate? Oh, he hates all divorce, Brother Kevin. Don't you just see? You see, it's crystal clear right there that God hates divorce, and that means all kind of divorce. It's just straightforward. We don't really need to go any further than that. Or do we? Sorry, I'm, I'm being sarcastic. It, it's been a busy week. It's been a good week. I've got good energy, and I'm feeling snarky tonight. So well, and, my apologies. And, and, and maybe anyway. maybe he does hate all divorce. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that. So we'll just end it there and let you... <laughs> well, I, I think in, in, well, I think if you think about it, anytime divorce happens, divorce is it's it's a tragedy. Anytime divorce happens, it's a tragedy. There's been something that has gone awry in what should be a beautiful expression of one person's love for you know his wife and for a wife's love to her husband. And whenever that goes awry, it is a tragic thing. So I would say there's a factor in which you could argue that God does hate all divorce in that way. But if you look at Malachi and within the context of Malachi, you'll see that it's not necessarily that God hates all divorce because after all, God allowed for it in order to protect the woman from a treacherous, hard-hearted husband. And that's the root of what Malachi gets to here. God doesn't necessarily hate all divorce. He hates treacherous divorce in which fairness and kindness hasn't been enumerated, where divorce is weaponized as a manner in which to inflict harm on another. Well, and this is where context is important. And when I'm talking to people now, and not just talking to people, but when I am reading the Bible myself, or when I quote something, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's when I'm teaching, whether it's when I'm writing an article, or even on this podcast, I first have to ask myself the question, what is the context? If I'm quoting a passage and I can't tell you what the context is, I probably don't need to be quoting that passage. And you'll hear people all the time yeah. just randomly quote. And I and for the fun of it, sometimes I'll say, yeah, well, what is the context of that passage? Uh, yeah. You know, well, uh, you know, I, uh, it's it's the Bible and, and it's, you know, we, people, 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 and I, and, yeah. and, and look, I'm not judging. I'm not, I'm not sitting in the seat of condemnation or judgment because I I've done this. And quite frankly, I still do it from time to time because it's very easy. It's the way that we've been taught to read scripture. Whereas we, we have a, a soundbite 
little passage that we're able to just go and didn't beat people over the head with and quote and say, look, I've got this Bible verse. But here's what you see with the context in Malachi chapter two is that not all divorce is being described here. What's being described is a specific type of divorce, which Malachi uses the word treacherous. It's, it's, it's treachery. It's a, it's a type of divorce that is considered treacherous. Now, I do think you have a good point that all divorce, whenever any type of divorce happens, whenever it ever occurred in the Old Testament, New Testament, today, in the future, it's because there was sin that took place somewhere. That, that, and so yeah. from, from that perspective, yes, all divorce is, is, is horrible. Somewhere there is sin that took place in order for a divorce cannot happen unless there was sin committed somewhere. It may be by one party. It may be by both parties, but sin was committed somewhere. However, that's not the context of Malachi chapter two. Verses 10 through 16. So what is the context here? What's going on? Well, if you look, these Jews, they were literally ruthlessly just divorcing their Jewish wives, which that would have been their believing wives, for no other reason than to marry other women of the land that they were living in who were pagans. And I love the way that Dr. Alan Ross put this. He is the professor of Old Testament Hebrew at the Divinity School in Samford University. And he said that the sin is introduced as a treachery before the sin is even defined. A treachery had been committed. That would get the attention of the audience. The word for treachery here means a willful betrayal of confidence, trust, or truth. One who is treacherous is a traitor, unreliable, and disloyal. And a traitor is dangerous. In the Jewish writings, the verb came to mean act violently, faithlessly, and rebel. In finding and marrying pagan women, they put away their first wives by divorce, and the two sins here are inseparably bound together. So the treacherous divorce, this is what's happening. You're married to your Jewish wife. She's a believer. You're a believer. But you're living in a land where there are other women because you didn't, you, you didn't get rid of the pagan influences. And so you have women of the land who were not followers of God. They weren't Jewish. They were pagan. And you found them. You saw them. And what did you do? You wanted them. So you divorced your current spouse, not for a justifiable reason, not for a moral reason, not for a lawful reason. You just divorced them for the reason that you wanted somebody else. And I like to put it this way. Treacherous divorce was seen as a faithless and hard-hearted divorce. And so not all divorce is treacherous, but all treacherous divorce is hated by God. And that's what we have to understand. Now, we were discussing this before we started to record, and this is a question I'll let you ask, and then we can discuss this for, for just a couple of minutes. Yeah, whenever we were going over this and we were reviewing the notes and putting our outline together for this podcast, one of the things that I noticed with this, and that is a wrinkle, I'm really glad that you brought Malachi 2 up. Because I have always heard God hates divorce. I mean, I remember an open Bible study that Brother George Batty had a while back with one of our no exception brethren, where it, it's kind of like a debate, but it's a little more it's a little more casual. It's not as heated. It's more cordial in its in its execution. And I can remember there being some brethren from the no exception um, persuasion there, and one of them was wearing a t shirt that said on the back, Mal 2.16, Malachi 2.16. And then on the front, it just said, God hates divorce. And I've always heard this taken this way. So whenever I'm looking at these notes and I'm looking at this quote and, and looking into that quote that you put in there from uh, from the professor, uh, what was his name? Let me find it. I just lost my notes. Um, Dr. Alan Ross. 
Yeah, Dr. Ross. And this idea about treacherous divorce, a question that immediately came to my mind, and maybe it comes to the mind of our listeners, is the idea, well, polygamy was a thing in that day. And if you're a Jewish man, you're married to a Jewish woman, and you want this other woman over here, well, why not just marry that other woman over there? I mean, why even go to the trouble of divorcing your spouse? I mean, to me, it seems like that this idea of treacherous divorce and divorcing one woman in order to marry another is almost a non sequitur. It almost doesn't follow. If polygamy was allowed, why not just do that? And that's a great question. And as we discussed before, this is why it's so important to understand the Jewish context and the Old Testament, because without it, we're asking questions that may sound like good, reasonable questions that maybe somehow, you know, in a way refute some of the conclusions. But then when we understand the context, we see that that's not the case. And so as Lee asked, why, if a man could have multiple wives, would it even matter? Why, why would he first divorce his current wife and marry another when he could have as many wives as he wanted? And the answer is simple. He would be responsible. He would be responsible for all the women whom he was married to. Not just responsible in a sense of making sure he's taking care of them, but financially responsible. That means he's got to pay for them. That means he has to take care for them. So if all of a sudden I see another woman I want, the last thing I want to do is marry her and now have two responsibilities. I want to get rid of the one I don't want, and then I'm going to go after the one I do want. And that's why you have Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4, when polygamy was much more common, even than it was probably during Malachi's time. And, you know, polygamy, while that was a common practice under Jewish law, during this time, a lot of Bible scholars will come to the conclusion and tell you that probably during that time, it wasn't practiced as much. That was more during the times of Moses and shortly thereafter. But when you do look at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, when polygamy was practiced, why even divorce at all? The reason is because if you could not take care of them, that goes back to the divorce certificate. You were to let them go free. But if you did not divorce them, you were responsible for them and you had to take care of them. And we're probably, we're, we are going to talk about this a little bit later, but a woman could also sue her husband if he, if her needs were not being met. And so instead of having to go through all that, it would just be a lot easier to say, Hey, I've got my wife. I don't want her anymore. I'm done with her because I found this other woman who looks a lot better. Maybe she's younger. Maybe she can cook better. But it's not a it's not a justifiable reason at all. You just divorce your wife because you don't want to have to fool with her. And then you go and you marry somebody else. So that would be the reason why they would divorce, because that would be one extra wife or woman they would have to deal with and provide for. And obviously they would not want that. Yeah, that definitely fits the description of what we could call treachery. That fits the description of hard-heartedness because it's it's not a matter of being committed to somebody. It's not a matter of extending love to them and honoring that commitment that was made. There's been no violation of the mar- marriage covenant or the marriage vows in in this instance. It's just uh, you know, I see something shiny and new. You know, I see this lady over here. Oh, man, she looks good. Hey, honey, sorry, I'm putting you away. Hey, you come over here. You know, that's that's treachery in and of itself. I mean, even whenever we see people divorce, we may wonder, well, what happened? And our hearts go out to both parties in that. You know, we feel bad for those folks. But whenever you hear about, you know, someone, maybe he's a serial philanderer and he you know, just sees this something new shiny over here and he divorces his wife and goes on with her. You don't feel bad for him anymore. I mean, we look down on people like that, even in our culture with disdain, but in this day, I mean that, of course that's treacherous. 
And what you're saying is, and I, and I think you're right on this, is that that's what Malachi is getting at. That's the context of Malachi. God hates treacherous divorce in which these marriage vows have been flippantly disregarded in order to pursue one's own wants. That's correct. Yep. And that's what you have here in Malachi 2 when you look at that context. And so the reason why I do not believe that everyone who divorces or ever has divorced is hard-hearted it's because we have morally and biblically justifiable reasons for divorce under the Jewish law. So clearly God wouldn't be saying if anybody, you know, everybody who's ever divorced their spouse is a hard-hearted, horrible person. That can't be the case because what we're going to see is here in a minute, God himself even does that. And so I don't think God's calling himself hard-hearted. But what we do see is that results leading up to, to divorce or, res, or things leading up to divorce, certainly God hates covenant breaking. God hates. God hates when someone is unfaithful. God hates all of those different things. But God doesn't hate every single person who's ever divorced, especially the specific situation that God himself had justified to provide for reasons where divorce may take place. That is actually the better solution, as we're about to see when it comes to the Jewish law. And so let's begin by looking at all of the different examples of morally and biblically justifiable reasons for divorce under the Jewish law. So let's begin with the first one, which is adultery. Probably one most yeah. people are familiar with, but let's go ahead and start with adultery. Yeah, we're just going to go ahead and undo everything we talked about in that last podcast where divorce wasn't the appropriate response to adultery. It was the death penalty. But that's how it was originally intended, but that changed over time. As time went on, things changed because like you said before, it would be incredibly hard to prove with two or three witnesses that adultery had taken place. So this was a concession that was made and executed under the law in order to, to still give an outing in the case where adultery happened. And most Jewish and biblical scholars, they're in full agreement, even if they're not in agreement on a lot of things uh, when it comes to marriage and divorce and remarriage, they're in agreement that most rabbis actually discontinued the death penalty judgment shortly after the death of Moses, in most cases anyway. Now, there are instances of it being practiced after Moses. You see Joshua 7.25 and 1 Kings 21, but the point is, is that it's very rare. You really don't see stoning after the death of Moses being practiced very commonly. And because of that, this sometimes led to what has been called as mob, mob stoning by some scholars. And mob stoning was actually not in accordance with the Jewish law, and it didn't meet the demands of the law, but it did happen. It would be where the Jewish people kind of took some of these laws into their own hands, and instead of acting in accordance with the law, they just wanted to go ahead and stone people. And we see, we really see three examples of this. I don't know if we see any more, but I know we see at least three in the New Testament. The first one is John 8, 1 through 12, which is the woman who was caught in adultery and they brought her out. And they said, what do we need to do? Do we need to stone her? And of course, that's when Jesus wrote something in the sand. And he said, he uh, who has no, no sin, let him cast the first stone. And then the second illustration or the exam second uh, example would be Acts 7, 54, with the stoning of Stephen, that certainly was not in accordance with Jewish law at all. The way they handled that was nowhere near in accordance with Jewish law. That was mob stoning. And then Paul references how he was stoned. Obviously, he didn't die, but Acts 14, 19, he, individuals tried to stone him. And so we do see this idea of mob stoning, but pretty much the idea of the death penalty ended right after Moses. And like I said, there are some examples of it still continuing on, but most of the time, in all instances, the death penalty pretty much was was just not utilized. And 
So because of that, this is very interesting, Lee. This is extremely interesting, especially coming from the background of being former legalist. Because in the case of adultery, the death penalty began being replaced or substituted with what is called in scholarship, and I'm going to go ahead and utilize this term, it's called disciplinary divorce. And what disciplinary divorce means is that you are utilizing divorce as a means of discipline when your spouse committed adultery. So that's what I mean when I say disciplinary divorce. And disciplinary divorce became the, that, that became, divorce became the discipline sometime after the, the life of Moses. Now, we don't know when, we can't really pinpoint and say at this specific time, but we do know this. Now, you may say, well, Kevin, how do you know this? How do you know that this became the, the common practice for adultery instead of the death penalty? And the, well, the here, first thing that we see, well, the first thing that we see is, is there's a mountain of historical and anthropological evidence that points to this. You see, so there are so many scholars that have dug through the rubble of these cities. They've gone and they found these manuscripts. They found these divorce certificates. They found scrolls. They found legal documentation that that demonstrates that this was the case. They see it in their study of culture. They see all that, but it's also found in the in the Bible itself, isn't it? Well, and before we even get to the Bible, I want to ask this question, and I'll let you spend a little time on this because I think that this is a way a lot of people look at the Bible. They look at the Bible and they go, well, I don't care about anything outside of the Bible. I just care about what the Bible says. Why is that not a very good way to approach the Scripture? It's not a very good way to approach the Scripture because one of the things that we have to realize is that the Bible was written in a vastly different time than our own. It was written in a vastly different place than our own. And it was also written to a people who were involved in different cultures than our own. They use different words. They use different figures of speech. They used different types of idioms. They had different ideas about how the world worked. They had different ideas regarding cosmology. They had different ideas regarding anatomy and biology and all manner of other things. That's not to say these people were dummies or that they were ignorant. They were incredibly intelligent. I mean, some of the greatest discoveries of all mankind have arisen from antiquity. And some of those very old ideas have been developed and refined and honed over thousands of years into the body of knowledge that we possess today. But the problem is, is that if you start looking at things that are so far removed from us and we have no contextual framework from which to operate, it's so easy to misconstrue things that are being said. And one of the things that comes to my mind is um, a, uh, oh, what movie was it? I can't remember the movie, but it was from the 1940s. And they were talking about going on vacation and having a, a, a grand gay time at this place. Now, if you say you're going to have a grand gay time in our day and age, you're going to get some weird looks. You're going to get some po- folks looking at you sideways, or maybe even in our day and age, you're not going to get some weird looks. Maybe you're going to get some pats on the back for whatever reason. But in that day and time, and that's only, what, 60 years, 70, 80 years removed from where we are now, 80 years ago, you have words and figures of speech that have changed meaning over time. And, and that's just in our modern day and age, you go back to ancient times where they use different figures of speech. They had a different understanding of the world. And you try to look at what happened in those ancient times through 21st century eyes, you're going to miss the mark on a lot of things. Being able to contextualize the scriptures 
is critical for being able to come to a sound conclusion of the intent of the author, what he wants to communicate, how the readers of that letter or how the listeners to that letter being read would have heard it. It's incredibly important. It can't be discounted. Yeah, so the bottom line then is that you can't really understand the Bible in a vacuum. And that's how some people try to read the Bible is they say, okay, I'm just going to take the Bible as this document. It's all I really need. But the Bible itself really can't be properly understood unless we understand the context. And some that scares a lot of people because they say, wait a minute, so I can't just take a Bible in hand and know Jesus? Sure you can. Absolutely. You absolutely can. In the hands of a legalist, you're going to know a lot more than, than Jesus, and you can get yourself in trouble if you don't understand the context. And people who just say, I'm going to take a straightforward reading to the Bible, they're going to find themselves in a lot of of contradictions. They're going to find themselves with a lot of impossibilities, things that just don't make any sense. It would be like if I wrote a journal and in that journal I said that it was raining cats and dogs and a thousand years later people are reading that and they go, well, I want to study just Kevin. I don't care about anything else. I just want to study Kevin's journal. And in that journal it says that it, I put that it was raining cats and dogs. And if someone said, well, look, Kevin says rain cats and dogs. And I mean, I believe him. I trust him. I, I, that's what his journal says. And if somebody else says, well, but I've studied during that time period and raining cats and dogs, that doesn't actually mean it was raining cats and dogs. That's just another way of saying that it was really raining hard outside. And someone says, no, 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 no. You're adding to Kevin's journal. You've got to understand this is what Kevin said. And this, this is, this is what I have to follow. Well, we would understand that's silly. That's nonsensical. So you have yeah. to understand the context, especially we really, we really have no excuse to be ignorant today. We can Google search documents. We can study the early church fathers. We can look at all sorts of books and not only read books, but we can do specific word study within those books. So you don't have to read all 500 pages in order to get to what you're looking for. And that's, that's what to me is really fascinating about the world we live in. We can know so much more that helps us to have even a better understanding. Not that you have to know and be a scholar and have all this in-depth research to, to, to know Jesus. But when you're studying these topics, the more we know, the better idea we're going to have. And so let's now get into, though, the Bible and what it does say outside of just the historicity of extra biblical content, as we've been discussing. The Bible itself teaches us that disciplinary divorce is what replaced the death penalty for adultery. And here's how we know that. First of all, the story of Hosea and Gomer is a story about disciplinary divorce. Now, we don't know if this is a real story or a parable. Uh, most of our conservative brethren would even, yeah, they wouldn't even believe, they probably would, would get upset that I would even throw that out there. It could have been a parable, but uh, okay, let's, let's assume it's a real story. Let's assume it's a parable. It doesn't really matter because it illustrates disciplinary divorce, and that's the purpose that we're talking about it tonight. Gomer though guilty of sexual infidelity, was not executed. She wasn't executed. She was divorced. And we know she was not executed because she repented and they later ended up remarrying. So the disciplinary action for adultery at this time was divorce and not death. This wasn't something that was uncommon according to the whole context of Hosea. So that's one example. Another example is, and well, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, no, that's okay. that's an excellent summary of it. So just so, keep on trucking, brother. Okay, so now we got a lot to cover. So this, the second is God himself is seen as figuratively, of course, and symbolically divorcing the northern kingdom, which was Israel at that time, for their adultery. We see that in Jeremiah 3, 6 through 8. But then also God is threatening to divorce the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah at that time, for their adultery. 
And what you'll have some people say, uh, I believe John Piper is, is one of these individuals who, by the way, I love John Piper. I disagree with him on marriage, divorce, remarriage. I have studied a lot of his stuff, but you'll have him and, 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 uh, and, and several other guys say, well, God really actually didn't ever divorce Israel. He only threatened divorce. Well, here's why I disagree with that. God is seen as being married during this time to actually two different spouses, which is in- very interesting to me. Very interesting because God himself is is involved in polygamy. Now, a lot, now that's scandalous to a lot of people. They don't like that, but this is the truth of the matter. God, that's the truth of the figure. It's just, it's, yeah. Yeah, God God is married to, the, to, to, he was married to the northern kingdom known as Israel, and he was married to the southern kingdom, which was Judah. Some people say, well, yeah, but in their totality was was still Israel. No, they were they were still the divided kingdom. And, and God had already divorced Israel or the northern kingdom for their adultery. And that was a past event. And he was using that. And he even actually calls them sisters, which is very interesting because, you know, in the, 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 the law talks about this, too. So he's 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 married to two sisters, to two two um, different spouses who were sisters. And he's saying, I just divorced your sister for adultery not too long ago. And if you don't change, I will also divorce you and give you a certificate of divorce for your adultery. And so what we see is God is seen as already having to divorce, ha- already divorced the Northern Kingdom, but was still married to the Southern Kingdom. And he was calling on them to repent. So he did not have to divorce them. Now, obviously, we, we see that this is symbolic. We see this as figurative for sure, no doubt. But what we have are descriptions involving divorce for adultery, the giving of a bill of divorcement and sending away in Jeremiah 3, 8 through 11, and then the promise of God making a new covenant with new Israel, which we now know is the church, spiritual, the spiritual kingdom, because they had broken the old covenant through adultery. And we see that in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. So to me, this is just a very fascinating example. All of it is. All of it is very fascinating because God is seen as a polygamist. God is seen being married to, was at one point married to two sisters. He divorced one for their adultery and was threatening to divorce the other one. Ultimately, by the way, he does. He divorces the the totality of Israel. He divorces both northern and southern kingdoms. And now we see that God is married to the church, that Jesus Christ is, is, is married to the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And from Romans 9, not all Israel is of Israel. And so this is not the same Israel. This is a new Israel that Jesus is now married to, that God is now seen as being married to. Well, and the biggest thing that I would hear or the biggest argument that comes to my mind against this idea is this idea, well, this is figurative and you can't make a concrete argument from figurative language. This is just a figure of speech. And I, I can imagine there are some that would that would make that argument. But the thing about figures of speech is that they don't make any sense unless there is a concrete or literal example or unless the thing that the figure references or utilizes is concrete or it actually occurs. Like it, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. If they weren't divorcing for disciplinary reasons in that era, then the illustration that God inspired Jeremiah to use would be nonsensical to those that would listen to it. I mean, it, it's like I can remember whenever I was in in school, I had a classmate who was from a foreign country where they don't really have ticks over there. And I remember we were sitting down, we were eating. I was like, oh, man, I feel like a bloated tick. And she looked at me and said, what's a bloated tick? She didn't have any idea what I was talking about. To her, that figure made no sense because she had no frame of reference, no literal thing to tie it to. I wasn't literally a bloated tick, but it was a figure of speech that communicated a principle. And in this, you have God utilizing 
through the prophet Jeremiah, something that would make sense to the people of his day, it wouldn't make any sense unless disciplinary divorce was an actual thing. Yeah, and this imagery would only make sense, like you said, if people were being divorced for adultery instead of being put to death. If if people were being put to death for adultery, then he would have said, hey, I killed, I killed your sister and now I'm going to kill you. Uh, but that's not what we see. And Yikes. They, they, that escalated quickly. They would have understood, okay, well, yeah, we understand people are being divorced for adultery, and now God is using this same common practice to symbolically express to us how he's already divorced our sister, Israel, and now if we don't change as a nation, he's going to divorce us and put us away for, for our adulteries as well. And so I want to be careful because I don't want people going away and saying, hey, Kevin says that, you know, we should all be polygamous because God is seen as being a polygamist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not saying that. I, we're I, not I saying understand that. that when we're dealing with figure, figurative language that you can't make an exact parallel to every facet. You know, I always talked about how in Second Peter 3, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. Well, that doesn't mean that we can go out and start stealing and saying, well, the Bible describes Jesus figuratively as a thief, so that means that we can we can be thieves too. So I, I get that. I understand that. The point, though, that we're making is in order for this symbolic language, this figurative language to even make sense, this practice would have had to be at least occurring. And there's there's nothing that would would go against this practice historically at this time. And the fact that God is seen as doing this means that this is something that was going on during that time. Yeah. And, and it's, it shouldn't be that far-fetched for us to understand this because laws change all the time. And, you know, previously we have talked about how, like, especially in our uh, Q&A episode over obedience, we talked about approaching the Bible as case law. And some people may be listening and, and wondering, why in the world are you approaching this like it's case law? And that's because even though the Bible as a whole isn't case law, this portion of scriptures is case law. That's the genre that these scriptures fall into. These are the law that dictated how Israel would live. And laws by necessity change as the needs of the nation changes. I mean, we had prohibition that was codified and made law in the United States uh, way back in the early 1900s. And then it was changed again with another amendment to the Constitution some, what, 10, 12 years later. So laws will change over time. And we see that happening with Israel as well. And this was viewed as something that was more merciful. This was actually viewed as a positive that instead of, of, of killing someone who sinned, now there's just a different punishment for, for that. There's a different discipline. And we continue to see this. So some people may say, well, I, I understand what you're saying, but you know, really with, with your first example of Hosea, you know, when you, when you look at that passage there in uh, Hosea chapter 1, and you look at Hosea and Gomer, that that could have been figurative, Kevin, and that could have been more of a parable. And with God, you see, you've already admitted that that's symbolic. So I'm still not really convinced. Well, that's okay if you're not convinced, because we still have some more examples that are even, in my opinion, more clear than this. And here's what they are. So the original penalty for adultery, as we have continued and continued to say, was death. But so was the penalty for the woman who cheated on the man to whom she was betrothed to. So this is found in Gen uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24. Now you may say, well, why in the world would you bring that up? What, what does that matter? Well, here's why. Under Jewish law, both pre- and post-consummational and faithfulness was considered the same. So whether you were betrothed to be married or whether you were actually married, 
sexual unfaithfulness was considered the exact same offense with the exact same consequence in Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 27. So whatever you say about a woman who was betrothed, it's the same thing for a woman who was married and vice versa. Whatever you say about a woman who's married, it's the same thing for a woman who was betrothed. The, the, the sin was the same. The, the, uh, the unfaithfulness was viewed as the same. And the offense was the same. The penalty was the same. The consequence was the same. Why is that important? Well, because in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, Joseph was going to divorce Mary because he thought she had cheated on him. So the Bible says Joseph being a hard-hearted man, is that what Matthew 1.19 says? No. <laughs> Joseph being a just man was going to divorce her secretly. What did that mean? In other words, what Joseph was doing was just. Joseph wasn't a hard-hearted man. Joseph wasn't a mean man. Joseph, Joseph's divorce, the reason why he was divorcing Mary was not because Joseph was a horrible person. It was because he was using disciplinary divorce. He thought she had cheated. He didn't want to be married to a cheater, so what was he going to do? He was going to secretly divorce her. What that meant is that he was not going to reveal the reason. He was a just man. He wasn't going to defame her and say, hey, she cheated. That's why I'm divorcing. He was going to just divorce her for the any re any any cause reason, which we'll talk about next week. He was going to just divorce her in a secret way. The point is, is that Joseph himself in the first century was considered a just man, and he was going to divorce. So not all divorce is the result of a hard heart. Not all people who divorce are hard-hearted or mean-spirited or bad or sinful. Jo Joseph was considered just. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute, Kevin. That was during the betrothal period. That was not during the actual marriage. But the point is, is that, and this is so vital to understand, there wasn't a difference under the Jewish law. There wasn't a difference. If you if you were, were divorcing your betrothed or whether you were divorcing your wife, it was seen as the same thing. The Jews handled it the exact same way. The law in Deuteronomy taught it was the exact same thing. So this is another example of how divorce replaced death. Because if Joseph was a just man, he would have said, hey, the law says we've got to put her to death, so I'm going to do what the law says. No, he was just, and so he was utilizing the disciplinary divorce in order to put her away secretly. Of course, he didn't. He ended up not doing it because an angel appeared to him and told him not to. But there was nothing wrong with what he was doing because he was just according to the text. So this is, I'm just going to read this really quick. Uh, this is from Professor William Luck. Uh, I love his material on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And this is what he says. He says, he just summarizes this. This is in his book called Recovering the Biblical View. He said, the scripture indeed recognizes and uses the clearly historical fact that divorce was used by the ancient Hebrews as a substitute for the death penalty. The points are clear. First, the death penalty was prescribed for cases of sexual infidelity by the wife. Second, Gomer though guilty of sexual infidelity, was not executed but was divorced. And third, God used this substitute treatment of the guilty wife as illustrative of his judgment of his wandering wives, Israel and Judah. This is further supported by Leviticus where widows, and which we didn't even talk about this, this is further supported by Leviticus where widows and the divorce were categorized together regarding their responsibilities to their former husbands and their present vows. So the point is, is that adultery became the justifiable and substitutionary replacement for the death penalty. Instead of the death penalty, if your spouse committed adultery, the punishment was disciplinary divorce. So with the disciplinary divorce, 
this is far different from the idea that we talked about earlier, treacherous divorce, hard-hearted divorce, that would later become known as any cause divorce with the school of Hillel, which we're going to get into in the future. But even so, the justifiable grounds for divorce, and the man could use these grounds to divorce his wife, not just adultery, but there were some other things as well. And if the man failed to meet some of these requirements or committed some of these um, crimes of against his wife, for lack of a better term, she could petition the judges and the courts in her area, the elders or, or whatever their uh, system was of law. She could petition them and sue her husband to receive a divorce certificate from him if he failed to meet these other requirements. So we talked about adultery. The other requirements were, well, one of them, we'll, we'll get into this, can be found in Exodus 21. Yeah, you and, mean uh, lawful and, reasons, not requirements. Yes, lawful yeah. divorce. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. Like I said, it was a long day, but hey, it's been a good day. So yes, yeah, so, there so, were so the first, reasons. So the first, yeah, so the first lawful reason, in, I mean, we said all that simply to say probably something 99.9% of everybody already agrees with, but uh, it's important to show people we're not just repeating what we believe. We're, we're demonstrating this point by point, and that is divorce for adultery was considered lawful, it was considered moral, it was considered justifiable, and it was actually considered a just and godly action when if your spouse did commit adultery according to uh, to even what Joseph, you know, he was a just man. So that's very important because if Joseph would have understood Malachi 2.16 to mean God hates all divorce, then number one, he wouldn't have done it. And number two, the Bible wouldn't have described him as a just man. It would have said this horrible person who violated Malachi 2.16 was going to divorce his his uh, betrothed Mary, but that's not what the text reveals. So that's very important. We understand that, that if you've divorced, that doesn't necessarily, could mean you're hard hearted, but it, it doesn't mean that everybody who's ever divorced someone or ever did divorce someone was hard hearted or did something that God hated. Yeah. And there are other valid grounds that are mentioned within the old Testament as well. And these are important because it, it, it necessarily frames the discussion for when we get into the new Testament. So the other ground, the, ground for divorce that we see in justified reason for divorce would be neglect. That's the next one that, that we're going to discuss. And you can read about this over in Exodus chapter 21 and verses 7 through 11. And in this passage, you have um, the Mosaic law describing how a man should treat his concubine. And a concubine would be someone that he took into his house as either you know, the result of a, of a raid, or this is a female slave or, or something to that effect that this man takes on as a lesser wife, you might say. And if he takes on this concubine as a lesser wife, then he cannot neglect her. And the things that he is required to provide to her are food, clothing, and marital rights. Now there's a lot of nebulous doubt out there as to what exactly marital rights are. Like we don't exactly know what all that constitutes, but it's reasonable to conclude that marital rights would be marital love, affection, um, sexual uh, activity. There's a lot of things that can fall under that umbrella marital rights. And for the next several thousand years, couple thousand years, different Jews and different schools of thought and different uh, law systems and training systems and things like that, they would debate this ad nauseum. And there's a mountain of literature that's out there or a mountain of documents that have been found that that discusses how some of these debates and and things went. But it was generally understood that marital rights included love, uh, sexual activity and and other things akin to that. So 
a concubine was a second-rate wife. I mean, this was a woman who wasn't the first choice for the man, but it was someone that the man either desired or took on as a wife. And so the idea is, is that if a concubine is, or if a man's required to provide these things to a concubine, who's a second-rate wife or a slave or whatever else, how much more then would this apply to a wife to whom he married by choice, consensually on both sides, you might say? I mean, is that a, does that seem to be a pretty good way to sum that up? Yeah, and, and I do want to make mention how there are people who disagree with this. In fact, uh, in preparing for this, I was just going back over some of my notes because I knew that, you know, I've... I've as I said before, I've tried to study this from all angles as much as I can to be fair. And people are look at this and, uh, and, and once again, you know, we have nothing to hide. We encourage you to look at alternative understandings. And John Piper, for example, he actually wrote an article about this. And he talked about how individuals who believe Exodus 21, 7 through 11 is proving, uh, proving grounds to divorce for neglect. He disagrees with that. And the reason why he disagrees with that is because he says that when you look at the context of Exodus 21, 7 through 11, the woman is not married yet to the man. So this would have not even been a marriage. That, that, that is his argumentation, is that, well, this, this would have not even been a marriage, and so you can't really use this as reasons or grounds to, to divorce someone or when the man had to divorce a woman if he could not provide for her rights or if he neglected her. So John Piper would disagree with that. Now, here is here is my response to John Piper, and this isn't something I came up with and said I responded to John Piper. This is how people respond to John Piper who do disagree with him, and I happen to be one of the ones who disagree with him. And here's why. What John Piper is saying, in my opinion, makes absolutely no sense. And he's trying to say this, this context is nothing about divorce. I agree with him 100%. This context is not about divorce for sure. This context is about not neglecting your, the, 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 the second woman or your concubine if you, if, if you had her, not neglecting her. That it's, it, this context is not about divorce. It's about taking care of your concubine. And if you can't do that, then this is what you were supposed to do. So I understand this isn't a case law text about divorce, but it does teach divorce. How do I know that? Well, here's why. And this is this is at least why I say, why, how do I know that? This is why I believe that, and I'll explain this. So there's some debate, like I said, as to whether this concubine would have actually been married to this man or simply betrothed. Here's why that doesn't matter. In the Jewish law, and I've already talked about this, the same offenses, consequences, and requirements were seen for both the betrothed and the married. Because a betrothal was a legal contract. It was a legal contract and spiritual covenant. It was a legal contract and spiritual covenant. Now, I want you to think what John Piper is saying here. He is saying that the lowest of the low, as far as culturally speaking, a concubine who was just simply betrothed. So a concubine was already considered second class. She was still considered a wife, but second class. But let's even assume she wasn't married yet. She was betrothed. So you have this woman who's betrothed, who's a concubine. And the law says, if you can't provide for her needs, you need to let her go free. You need, you need, if you're betrothed to her, let's assume John Piper's right, and this is just talking about a betrothal. If you're betrothed to this concubine, the second-rate wife, and you're not even married to her, you're just betrothed to her, you're in this contract and you're betrothed to her, and you're not able to provide for these things, then you are to let her go free. 
Now, if the Bible is that concerned with a second-rate wife who was betrothed, my question is, how much more would God be concerned with a free wife who was married to the man? If, if, if the law said you have to protect even the concubine you're betrothed to, why in the world would we think that that same law would not also apply to the free wife that he's married to? How much more so would the law not apply to the free wife to, to, to the woman, the free woman who he's actually married to. Does, does that make sense, Lee? Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, oh, dude, that makes perfect sense. And that follows the same line of reasoning that so many rabbis throughout history use to apply Exodus 21 to the idea of marriage and the marital rights, not just the marital rights as enumerated in Exodus 21, but all of those things that were required of a man to provide to his concubine. And that that is just of historical it's a historical fact. I mean, I have, I looked at those manuscripts. Have I read all of those things? No. Can I read Hebrew? No, I'd like to, maybe I should start working on that. Maybe that's the next hobby I can take up is learning biblical Hebrew podcast, jujitsu, going to the gym, all this other nonsense shalom, and Hebrew. Shalom. shalom, shalom, peace be unto you. But I have read after people who are experts and I have read after people who have looked at those manuscripts and I have looked after people that have made that study their life's work. And there's practically, it's practically unanimous within those circles that what you just said about how much more does this apply to a bona fide first rate wife, you might say, quote unquote, it makes perfect sense. And it made sense then. And through that lens of historical context, it even makes sense now. Yeah. And that, that is to me, and by the way, I, I want to go ahead and get a, in this podcast, I'm, it's probably gonna be even longer than normal, but yeah, it, people can always hit the pause button. You know, they can always, <laughs> you know, I, Lee, I, oh, I, yeah. I was talking to somebody they're like, man, your podcast's too long. You should break them up. I said, well, you do know there's a pause button. You could always come back and kind of break it up yourself. But one, one, one thing, <laughs> technology, man, you know, technology. Um, but he, here, here's the thing is that when you look at this context, the reason why this is so scary, so frightening to people is because of the implication when we get to Jesus. And we're not going there today. We're not going there today. But John Piper believes in no reason at all for divorce. So if you start bringing up things like neglect, that's scary. That's scary because all of a sudden now you're talking about the application of what all we know about the Jewish law. And we have to bring that into the New Testament and understand what Jesus and Paul says within this context. And so now I will say John Piper doesn't deny that this can't be talking about it. He just simply says, well, there's other people out there who hold different opinions. And and I agree with that. There's people who hold different opinions on everything. But my question is, when you when you look at this in context, I, first, first of all, let me go ahead and say, I believe this is a wife. I don't even take the, the position this is the betrothed. I believe this is actually a wife because it talks about providing for her marital rights. So I do believe that this is a concubine who he's married to, not just a concubine who he's betrothed to. But Within that, you brought up a fantastic point. Dr. Instone Brewer, he states this, and no scholar, by the way, disagrees with what I'm about to read. They just simply say that all these rabbis were wrong. And this is what he says. He says, quote, these grounds, which neglect, were recognized by all factions within Judaism and allowed divorce by women and men. The woman could sue her husband if she was being neglected in order to try and get a divorce because the husband would still have to provide the certificate. 
The rabbi's understanding was based on the Mosaic law that a concubine could be free of her marriage if her husband neglected her, and the rabbis assumed that if an ex-slave had these rights, then so did a neglected free wife or a a neglected husband. So what you see is that this is rooted in history. The position that Lee and I are giving you is not the minority view. This was the position that virtually all rabbis accepted. Now, I'm not saying that that in and of itself proves anything because God knows literally that Jesus, when he was on earth, did a lot of correction <laughs> of what the rabbis taught. But what we're, oh, yeah. but, but what we're saying is, is that, interestingly enough, this was one position that was more compassionate. This is one position that, that makes a lot more sense within context because, as I stated before, I don't think it's a far jump to say if God wanted the betrothed concubine to be taken care of, and if she couldn't be provided for, then she needed to be let go so she could find another another man. How much more than the than the free woman who was a wife? And that would be like saying, if you have your friend, you know, if you're babysitting your friend's children, then make sure you take care of their food, clothing, and shelter. But, but when it comes to your own children, you don't have to worry about their food. Class. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. And that that's kind of what you're talking about here is that we, we have to understand these things in context. And it would kind of go without saying if, if, if God requires that you take care of the lowest of the low, as far as culturally speaking at that time, you better make sure you're taking care of all the women that you're attached to, all the women you're betrothed to, all the women you're married to, you take care of them. And if you can't do that, you are to let them go free so that they can go and marry another man. I think this is a powerful passage, and I believe, personally, those who have an issue with this have an issue with it because they are already starting with the presupposition of divorce for no reason, and this flies in the face of that position. Well, and that's something I really would like to touch on briefly. I mean, do we really ever touch on anything briefly on this podcast? We really don't. Well, don't get too um, much into divorce for no reason, because I, I, I want to cover that all next week. So, oh, we, we definitely <laughs> will. But, but no, but no. The, the idea though is th- that idea of presupposition is kind of what I want to touch on before. And like you said before, dude, it, it is scary. I mean, whenever you begin to confront some deeply rooted patterns of belief and thoughts and ideologies that you've possessed, whether you've inherited them or whether you've studied your way into them, it's, it's incredibly scary because you're getting into uncharted waters. I mean, you're uprooting your certainty in a system or in a set of people or in an ideology. And it's, it's so uncomfortable. It is so uncomfortable to consider the idea that maybe I'm wrong here. No one likes being wrong. No one enjoys having the rug pulled out from under them, proverbially speaking. I mean, I remember whenever I began to confront some of these ideas and some of these modes of thinking that I'd possess. And I mean, marriage, divorce, and remarriage was one of them. And after having some friends that had gone through some rough patches and some rough divorces, I, you know, I began to wonder, you know, do I really, do I really have the right position on this? Is this really the right way to go about thinking about it? And I mean, if I want to be frank, of course, I want my friends to be able to have a happy life, you know, and frankly, I wanted to find a reason why maybe the position that I held was wrong. And I think that there are some people that will probably think ill of me for that. Oh, you just want to find a loophole. Well, to me, whatever the motivator is that leads you to truth, well, truth is truth regardless of how you come to it. 
And for me, at least it, this study on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, I didn't study it nearly as deeply as what you did. I mean, I borrowed from a lot of the same resources that you have used and read after a lot of the same people that you had read after coincidentally, but also because I discovered some of your material that you had written on a few years ago. And this is what led to you and I reconnecting after we hadn't you know, seen or talked to each other for several years. And I came to you to look after, you know, some more, some more stuff. You and I have had a lot of conversations on this, but it, it's incredibly uncomfortable. And there are people that are listening to this. And as we go through this process, one of the reasons why we're taking so much time to cover this is we want to leave no stone unturned. We also don't want to allow anyone to come after us and say, oh, well, you just think this, or you just think that, or you just want a loophole, or you just believe this because it's easier for you to do this, or you just want to justify sin. If we cover everything, then hopefully we're demonstrating that we, we've arrived at these positions in good faith. It's ultimately after a desire for truth. We want to be contextually grounded in what we believe. We want to be firmly rooted and established in the truth. Now, if someone holds a different conviction than we do on this, if someone's married and they believe within their heart of hearts that if I get married again, that's just not something I can do. Well, I can respect that. But two questions come to mind. Number one would be, you know, are you going to bind that on somebody else? Are you going to force someone else into that same position? Because to me, that goes too far. But number two, why have you come to that conviction in the first place? And it's because of that presupposition that you talked about. A lot of times these are inherited positions that we receive that we don't really study out. We just take it. We hear the sound bites and we accept it. And to unravel a lot of that, you have to go deeper than a soundbite. You have to go deeper than a 10-minute conversation or a 12-minute YouTube video. It takes depth to to navigate these waters. Well, so this, I just wanted it, to touch on that because it's so important. Well, this is the question that I would ask anybody listening, who, especially who disagrees. How familiar are you with Exodus 21? Is this a passage that you had even considered or thought about? Now, some people say, oh, that's Old Testament, don't matter. I'm just going to listen to what Jesus says. That That is the approach that says, I don't care about the context. I already have my mind made up, and Jesus said, cut off your right hand. I don't care about anything else. I'm going to cut off my right hand because that's what Jesus commanded. Well, we would, we would look at that and say that's a ridiculous conclusion. But we're doing the same thing when we're quoting all of these passages and we're not looking at everything. We're not understanding the context. We're not we're not willing to listen to more so that we have a better understanding or perhaps the best understanding that we possibly can have. And so the 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 bottom line is that ex I am firmly, I am I am fully convinced and I firmly believe that in Exodus 21, 7 through 11, this is this passage is saying whether it's talking about the betrothed or whether it's talking about someone that the man had already married, either way, I believe this passage teaches that if you, under the Jewish law, now once again, we're going to get into what all this means with Jesus and Paul later, but under the Jewish law, what this is saying, and, and virtually all factions of the, the Jews, rap, the Jewish rabbis believe this, that if you were married to someone and you could not provide for for their for, for specifically what is mentioned is food, clothing, and marital rights. If you neglected them, then the text actually says you shall send them away. 
Well, this is interesting because it's saying if you're not able to do this, you need to divorce them. If you if you're not able to love them for whatever reason, and in this context, because you've ha- you've found another wife, you're not able to do it. You need to to send them away so that they can go and find somebody to love. And this is what's sad is that we have put the law of marriage over the people within marriage. And it reminds me a lot of what Jesus had to say about the Sabbath. We So many preachers out there today believe that humans were created for, for, for marriage, not that marriage was created for humans. And so because yeah. of that, they apply it in such a way that destroys people. I know people right now who are living in what they call a marriage. It is nothing. What like what the Bible calls a marriage? Because they say, well, the Bible just says I got to do it. And this is, I was taught when you make a covenant, you keep it. You make a covenant, you keep it. Uh, and, and and yeah, I understand that. And you're getting a black eye every, every week because of it. And your children are being abused because of it. And you think that's what God wants? And so when I, when I hear people say these things, I get passionate about this. Because, Lee, I have been in conversations with people and I've told people, that they need to remain in marriages that they did not, that was that was harmful to them. But I told them because they made that covenant, they need to. And then I've also been in situations where there were people who loved God and they loved each other. And I told them they couldn't be in that marriage because of a sin one of them previously committed. And so when people say Kevin, do, Kevin doesn't understand the other side, friends, I understand this side very well. I understand the other side very well. I have told people they need to divorce a happy marriage simply because of something that I thought they did wrong in the past that would somehow exempt or uh, exclude them from having that marriage and vice versa. I've told people who should not be in marriages because of the abuse, because of the the betrayal, because of what's going on in that marriage, that God would want them to stay in that marriage. And and it's, it is, man, it's just heartbreaking. We're kind of getting to preaching now, but the point is, is that it haunts you, brother. Man, it I, stays yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you something. I had a, you know, we'll just make this a very long podcast today. So, because <laughs> we're about halfway through. So, I I had a, a woman email me about four years ago when I first started changing. Now, this is this is when I was still studying through marriage, divorce, remarriage. So, I still held a pretty, pretty traditional strict view, at least from the Churches of Christ perspective. And... This this was a woman who I told her she could not remarry, and uh, and and I told her she she you know she was not able to, and she had been abused by her husband. Her husband had abused their child, and then her husband, um, you know, she ended up divorcing her husband because of that, and then he later remarried. And I still told her she didn't have a right because she didn't actually divorce her husband for fornication. And yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, your husband beat, beat you up every day and I'm sorry you abused your kids, but she just can't remarry. She was dating a man. And so I had a conversation in their house uh, or in her house. They weren't living together um, in her house while they were dating. I said, look, you guys need to quit dating because she, she cannot remarry. Well, that was when I was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. So I, I planted the seed of doubt. You know, what if, what if, what if? Isn't it better just to ma- just in case, just to make sure? So the man ended up breaking up with this woman. And this, man, this has been years ago. I mean, it's been over a decade ago. And so about five years ago, four years ago, I'm not sure exactly when, this, this woman emailed me. And she said, Kevin, I just want to let you know uh, I'm still single, not because I believe I have to, but because the man that that broke up with me, that you scared into breaking up with me, which I did, I scared him into breaking up with her, uh, has has now married, and I will never. Uh, she said I, I he was the he was really the only man I wanted to marry, and, and to this day she's still single, and and I, and she talks about how you know I I broke up something great, and unfortunately that man ended up marrying another woman who's who's been horrible for him. 
And it's just been a, those things do haunt me because I realize how destructive my teaching was. And so before people say Kevin's judging all these people who hold a strict view, I'm judging myself as a false teacher when I held that view. That's who I'm, I'm calling myself a false teacher back then um, because I was. And so that's just, that was a soapbox. So I'll get, I'll get, I'll get off of it. But man, I just was so ignorant. I was so ignorant because I, I did not know any of this stuff we're talking about. I, done, I had never even considered alternative positions during that time because I was taught something. I had the truth and I knew it was the truth and I was pressing that on everybody else. And so my question is, if you're listening to this, have you even studied these things? And I'm not saying that to be derogatory. I'm not saying that to say, look, I'm, I'm much smarter than you because I was guilty of, of not studying the way I needed to. And yeah, it's an honest question. It's an honest question. Have you examined this? Because to me, there's there's no questioning that truth itself cannot withstand. And the Bible tells us that we need to test all things and hold fast to that which is good. And I've known of people that have said, well, there are some things that are just a foregone conclusion. There are just some things that you just don't need to study. You just need to accept them and you need to move on. And to me, that's a low view of truth. Because we all should be willing to come to the table and put everything that we believe on the table. Let's put it on the table. Let's examine it. Let's study it in its context in an effort to better know God and to bring us closer to him and his will for our lives and how we are to preach his word and execute his will upon this earth. And if there is a teaching that we hold to that is truth, well, then it's truth. But if it seems to violate the nature of God and who he is, if it seems to violate the greater trajectory of scripture and where scripture leads us, well, then maybe we need, and I would say that marriage, divorce, and remarriage and some of the positions that are held fits that descriptions, then maybe we need to reexamine that. We need to look at it through through maybe fresh eyes and be willing to look at it with a blank slate without presupposition. And it's really hard to do that. I had a, a professor in school, and he he always had a quote. And I loved it. He said, "Most most people, when they first hear something that's different than what they believe, their response, whether they say it or not, is don't confuse me with the facts. I already have my mind made up." And 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 that is how how I used to be. Is look, don't be bringing all these facts to me, man. Don't be bringing me all these extra Bible verses. Don't be throwing historical context. I already know what I believe, and don't convince, don't 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 confuse me with all these facts because I already know what I believe. And so so let's let's kind of get back here because I know we've we've taken a little detour. But yeah, we, we bunny tread a little bit. But I, I think I I'm in agreement with you though, and basically regarding neglect and what Exodus 21 teaches us about neglect. And it's, to me, it's, it's fairly straightforward, especially when you look at it within the context of its day, but that's not the only justifiable reason we see for divorce in the old Testament. Yeah. So, so far, just to summarize, we've, we've talked about adultery and now neglect. So those were two lawful justifiable reasons for divorce, disciplinary divorce. That is when your spouse committed adultery, you, you, as we saw with Joseph, as we see from God, that is not uh, sinful. It's not hard-hearted to divorce when your spouse committed adultery. Uh, by the way, when when someone's spouse did commit adultery, they gave them a divorce certificate, and that person would have been able to remarry again. So that's that's interesting to think about. But also, dun, dun, dun. when but but also when you look at neglect, the same thing. So you have adultery and you have neglect. Now we move into a little bit more of some subjective reasons. And the reason why I call them subjective is because in some cases, 
you see what seems to be divorce being acceptable, but then in other cases, it's something that is not practiced with these same reasons. If that doesn't make sense, that's okay. We'll, we'll all break this down. So the next reason, so let's talk about this. A believer marrying a non-believer at times was morally justified for divorcing the non-believer. And, and let, let me just, let me kind of give a little context and then we'll break this down. So as a general rule, it had always been wrong against God's law for the people of Israel to intermarry people from other nations. If you want those Bible verses, it's Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, Joshua 23, 12, and Malachi chapter 2, verse 11. And by the way, it would have not just been the seven pagan nations. It would have been all nations, all other nations. Uh, Exodus 34, 12 through 16 and Nehemiah 13, 25 through 27. Sometimes people go and they go, well, in, in Deuteronomy, it's just these seven pagan nations. That's what's listed there. But what we see later with Solomon is that it was with with any any other nation other than, than, than a Jew, you could not marry. Now, there were some exceptions to this. And by the way, this isn't about the color of skin or racial prejudice. It was because all the other nations would have been pagans. They would have worshipped other gods. And so God wanted to protect his people from intermarrying to not be influenced. And this is just common sense. So there is a law, however, about the times when if you did marry a non-believer, there were, there were justifications and there were times you could do that, but they had to go through certain rituals first, such as shaving their head and clipping their nails and going through like a, a month's mourning period, if you will. So in the context, this is all found in Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. And in that passage, Deuteronomy 10 through 14, it says, if you go in and you, you're, you're conquering these territories and you find a woman and you're attracted to her, you like her, this is what you need to do. But it says, after she does all that, and you make her your wife, you go into her, you have sex with her, she's your wife. Later, if you find no delight in her, then you are to, you, you could divorce her and send her out with a divorce certificate. Same thing. Every time a man divorced a woman, he was to send a, give her a divorce certificate every single time. So we see this in Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. Now, here is where we see an example of this actually being played out, which is in Ezra chapter 10. And in this example, clearly, we have wives who had not been converted to following God. And because of that, these leaders, Israel, was being negatively impacted by these pagan marriages, and they were being led away from God. So Ezra, may, Ezra, Ezra prays, he, he wondering, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And so this is, this is what ends up happening. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 3, they decided they were going to divorce their pagan wives and not only put away their, their pagan wives, but also the children that had been born to them. And the Bible says to do so as the law instructed. So this is interesting because what did the law state? Well, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, the law stated that they had to give them a divorce certificate. And Ezra chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, we see this happening. They God didn't say, well, these are not real marriages. These marriages were, were never real in my eyes. No, they were very real marriages. And had, had those wives continued to, to be good wives, had those wives had not influenced them away from God, had those wives perhaps even converted, then that's something that that marriage could, should, have, should have continued in. But because they were being led away, God saw that this is not hard-hearted to divorce your unbelieving spouse 
because you they that you you're being led away. You don't need to be around them, so you need to divorce them according to the law. So they got all the courts opened up. They had the officials, they had the elders, and they had the judges, and they gave them the divorce certificate. They went through the proper steps. So they had to provide their wives with the divorce certificate and let them go out free, according to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, as well as Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. So a lot of people, they come to Ezra 10, they're like, man, I don't understand this passage. What's going on? Well, I'll tell you what I think is clearly going on is they are applying at least a principle from Deuteronomy 21, chapter, uh, or Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. Well, I think that's exactly what happened here. What's interesting, though, is is that in this light, we see that it was necessary for them to execute this aspect of the law because of that poor influence that those pagan nations had had upon the Israelite men that had married these foreign women. And in each of these cases, and that's the thing I really like that you pointed that out, is that in every single case in which divorce occurred, a divorce certificate was given. But just because this happens here, that doesn't mean that, I, and I mean, you put it this way when we started this discourse on this aspect of this, but just because it happened here in Ezra doesn't mean that a Israelite man was always required to divorce a pagan wife because yes. we see other examples where that didn't take place. I mean, you see intermarriage is taking place and divorce wasn't required. It didn't take place. I mean, you see that with Abraham in Genesis 25 and verse 1. You see it with Judah in Genesis 38 and 2. You see it with Joseph in Genesis 41 and 45. I mean, you see it with Moses himself in Numbers 12 and verses 1 through 8. Salmon in Matthew 1 and 5. Malon and Chilion in Ruth 1 and 1 through 3. You see it with David in 1 Chronicles 3 and 2 Samuel 12. You see it with Solomon himself. They all married pagan women. And none of them were required to divorce their pagan spouse. And these unions weren't just accepted, but they were even blessed by God. And you see that with Moses, especially in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 1. And what's really interesting is when you think about Ruth, you know, not too long ago here in Ardmore, we did a study on Wednesday night of the women of the Bible. And Ruth was a book that I'd always skipped over. It didn't really hold a lot of value to me whenever I was younger. I love the books of the Kings, Samuel, First Samuel Kings, and, and Chronicles because it's like a it's it's like a fantasy novel. I mean, it's like Game of Thrones or something like that. It's 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 incredible the treachery, the subterfuge, the war, and everything else. And Ruth over here, it's just like a little love story. You know, it's like one of those Hallmark movies. I had no interest in the book of Ruth whatsoever. But man, there's a lot of power in Ruth. There's a lot of good theology in Ruth. And you have Ruth, who is a foreign woman who marries Boaz, and she is honored with being in the lineage of King David, arguably the greatest king that Israel would ever have, but also of Jesus the Messiah himself. And to me, that's that's a powerful testament to the idea that not in every case would you expect these inner marriages to be condemned of God, but in many cases they were approved of and and given God's blessing. Yeah, and that's that's why we have to be careful with what I call principle, and I and I bring this up all the time, principle theology, where you say, okay, well, here in Ezra 10, we see that the believers were commanded to divorce the non-believers. And so thus, this is a principle that any believer who's ever been married to non-believer, they had to divorce them. Now, some people are going to look at some of the examples that you alluded to earlier and say, well, in those cases, Lee, they were converted. And so that they were proselytized in, they, they were converted to Judaism. You know, Ruth, Ruth being a big part of that, she was a follower of God. And that's true. 
But then there were other cases where we see with David, we see with Solomon, people could point out and say, well, clearly they were led away by God in many instances, but they were never told to separate themselves from their non-believing spouse. And so we we have to understand everything within its context. But the point is, is that I do think in Ezra 10, this is not just something they pulled out of a hat. This is a principle for Deuteronomy from Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14, that if you were married to a non-believer, if you were married to a pagan, then if 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 after a period of time you were no longer pleased with them, you were to put them back. Well, certainly, if they were leading you away from God, would that not be a reason? If if oh, if course. not being happy with the way they cook, or if not being happy with the way they're they're pleasing you sexually, if if people are going to say that is what Deuteronomy twenty one is talking about, how much more than if this individual is leading you away from God? So, it, it, as I said before, it would appear or at least be implied that the examples where the marriages were blessed by God, the spouse from the pagan nation had either converted or the believer was not being led astray by his wife. But then there were also some instances of people being married to non-believers, and obviously they did not have to divorce. So this is why one-size-fits-all theology, when we take a principle from the Bible, is dangerous. And here's why it's dangerous, because I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this right now. I believe. It is a sin today for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And you'll hear a lot of our brethren, especially in the Church of Christ, they're not willing to say that. They're going to say things, well, it's not wise. Well, you shouldn't do it. It's not the smart thing. No, no, no. I believe it is a sin. I believe it is a violation of, of God's will when a believer knowingly and willing, willingly chooses to, to be joined to a non-believer. Now, you legalist. How yeah, dare isn't you? that crazy? You know, I'm, how, I'm, I'm. How dare you? <laughs> so here I am. I'm a flaming liberal on the on the one hand, and then I'm a I'm a hardcore legalist <laughs> on the other. So people ask me, they're like, "Well, Kevin, I thought you were grace centered. I thought you were open minded. You know what? What what's up, man? What's going on? Well, here's the thing. When you look at the very from the very beginning, God has always been concerned with His people, and the whole time throughout the Jewish law, a believer was not to marry a non-believer. That's, that's, you can't dispute that. You cannot dispute that. You just can't do it. And that's something that I'm not really, I mean, if someone has some principle out there, I'll listen to it. But we see that as a command. We see that as a principle. We see it in examples. Any way you want to look at it, it's all throughout the Jewish law. Well, then you come to the New Testament and we see the same thing. I used to mock people who would quote 2 Corinthians 6.14 about not being unequally yoked and say, well, the context of that has nothing to do with marriage. It's it's more fellowship with with unbelievers, and it, it has to do with, with more involving yourself in those practices. Well, my question is, if I'm not even supposed to ha- be careful with my fellowship with non-believers, how much more so than the person I'm choosing to join myself to as my life mate? So I, I think certainly 2 Corinthians 6.14, though not directly, certainly indirectly, would lay forth a principle that continues God's will for a believer to marry a non-believer. Same thing with 1 Corinthians 7.39 about marrying in the Lord. Same thing with 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Paul says, do we not have a right to take a sister? Do we not have a wife to, a right to take a believing wife? A believing wife, wife yeah. So, so in that, I guess in a lot of ways, I, I am pretty conservative. I, I've had some debates about this with other friends who say, no, I don't think it's, it's, it's a sin. I say, I certainly think it's a sin. But here's why people are not willing to, to say that. People say, well, how do you repent of that? Well, you repent of it by realizing you shouldn't have done it, and then you make the most of that marriage. That's what you do. That's how you repent of it. But people who take a hardline approach, the reason why they don't say it's a sin is because if they say it's a sin, then from a lot of their perspective, you would have to end that marriage, 
And quite frankly, you have a lot of reason to 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 argue that. You you could go to Ezra 10 and say, hey, this is clear. This is what you would have to do if you if a believer married a non-believer. And sometimes people will go to what Paul has to say in Peter in first first Peter 3 1. Peter's talking, Paul's talking in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 14. But in that context, Paul's not actually talking about a believer who willfully married a non-believer. He's talking about someone who was a non-believer who's already married and then they later converted. That's what he's talking about in the context. Now, however, once again, I'm not saying that if 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 two if if a believer chooses to marry a non-believer that they're going to hell and that they have to divorce. I don't believe that at all. I, I do not believe that at all. But I do believe it's it was a sin. That decision was a sin, and that that individual needs to needs to repent by confessing to God that they didn't make a the, the, they didn't make a right decision on that. That doesn't mean God can't turn it into something good, and that that person can't be sanctified. And that's even what Paul talks about. But I just think it's interesting how people will back away from that and not call it a sin because they're afraid of what they'd have to say. But from everything that I know from the Old and New Testament, God is the same as as as, as he was then as he, and he is now. Why in the world would God now all of a sudden be okay with believers marrying non-believers? Like, why would he be all right? Like, why, why, yeah. why would he put off forth all these laws, all these commands— and and then all of a sudden say you know what sure now you can just be who be with whoever you want to want to be with just marry whoever you want so once again people may disagree with me on that and that's fine I, I'm kind of glad at least I can say I take a conservative position on something um, <laughs> but you know that 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 is my position on that but the bottom line is like it or not we do see that there is biblical justification and sometimes even needs to be a divorce according to Deuteronomy twenty one ten through fourteen. In Ezra chapter ten, if you were married to a non-believer and that non-believer was taking you away from God, well, and I think it's really important to point out a nuance in this is just because it's a sin does not mean it's something that God can't forgive you for. And whenever we take the position that, like, let's say we do take the position that it is a sin for a for a Christian to marry a non-believer, and the only way that you can repent of that is to get a divorce. I mean, that's the, like you said, that's the reason why some of our people are um, hesitant at the very least to say that it is an actual sin for a believer to marry a non-believer because the only way you can repent would be to get a divorce. Well, the issue is, is that whenever we do that, we're almost saying that the idea of a believer marrying a non-believer is an unforgivable sin. Whenever Jesus himself said that the only unforgivable sin would be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that'd be a whole other podcast in and of itself, but we tend to say, oh, no, 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 Jesus. You see, there's another unforgivable sin, and that's if a believer marries a non-believer, if, and, and that'll play a role in how we look at divorce in the New Testament as well. But like you said, the way you repent of that, it doesn't mean if you're a believer and you've married a non-believer and you view that as sin, that doesn't mean you can't be forgiven for that. And the way you're forgiven for that is is that you you repent if if that is indeed a sin. And, and the thing is, is with you, this is one area where you and I disagree and that's okay. I don't believe it's a sin for a believer to marry a non-believer and that's okay. It's okay for us to disagree on that point. Right. I do see the point that you're making. And I think there's a lot of power in that point. I personally don't go as far as you do and that's okay. You see people, what we're demonstrating now is how you can disagree agreeably. Actually, this is the last podcast I can do with you. (laughs) You're marking me now. I'm I'm marking you you. publicly, man. I'm marking you. (laughs) (laughs) But, and and yeah, and I want to make that clear too. I'm, you know, the point I'm making is that I don't believe if someone has made the decision to marry. I'm not saying that you're a horrible person. 
But I, I do not believe that that was in accordance with God's will. But I also don't believe you can go to Ezra 10 and pull a blanket statement and say, hey, this is, or make a bl- blanket statement from Ezra 10 and say, this is what you now have to do in order to repent. And so that, so the, the way I would summarize that, believers marry, uh, divorcing non-believers, is that the command and example of divorcing your non-believing spouse in, in Deuteronomy 21 and Ezra 10 should not be seen as a blanket principle. Uh, for all believers and non-believers. And each situation should be individually considered before a decision is made, which is interesting when Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, because it says, if they are willing to live, do not divorce them. We always talk about necessary implication. Hmm, or, you know, what, what's going on there? What is that? What means if they're not willing? What, what, if, what if they are taking you away? What does it seem to, to be that Paul is saying there? Well, I don't want to give too much away, but that, that's why when we, we have to read the Bible, as a whole, and so so much so many people want to say, okay, we've got Old Testament God and New Testament God. We've got the Old Testament that is just a completely different. It has nothing to do with the New Testament. No, we have to look at all these things once again within context because Paul, Peter, Jesus, these were Jews. They 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 had a Jewish training, a Jewish understanding. So all these things that we're learning right now, they would have been even much more familiar with it than we are. So when they're talking, they're talking with this knowledge. They're not talking with what their preacher said last Sunday about how to view marriage, divorce, and remarriage through the 21st century. They're, they're, they're looking at it from their own culture and their own context. And so the bottom line is, so far, we got one more to go, so just hang with us. But the bottom line is, so far, you, you what I have, what I believe is categorized, you can say, is three justifiable reasons for divorce, and that is adultery, as disciplinary divorce, as the and then neglect and then also incest and as lee pointed out if a woman was being neglected and her husband goes i want to go back to this real quick because i want to make sure we did hit on this if a woman was being neglected she could not divorce her husband because she could take him to court and she could sue because she could say i'm being neglected and then of course he would have to provide her with that certificate but the woman still needed the certificate the woman herself could not get the certificate she had to get it from her husband so i just want to make that clear because i'm going through my notes and i i did, didn't feel like we hit that very very well so yeah, anyway cool, so, so so now we'll look at the last point of today's lesson uh today's podcast and that is incest so let's talk about this a little bit Take yeah, it. go ahead. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Unless you want me to do it, man. We've been here for an hour and a half and we're trucking along. I am glad that most of our listeners have long attention spans. That's a good thing. Yeah. Apparently, um, apparently you don't, man. You're like, wait a minute. What point are we? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I actually, my screen just went off and I had to get back on to the, to our little outline here, but yeah, incest, whenever you look at that, you see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in, in multiple places, specifically Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 27, and Leviticus 20, that the law condemned um, having intercourse with or marrying certain relatives like your brother's wife, even if they were just a half-relative, even if they were just a half-sister, there was condemnation against that, which is what made what Amnon did to Tamar, that Absalom you know, took vengeance on behalf of his sister. That's what made it even more repulsive. I mean, what Amnon did was absolutely horrible in that story where David's son Amnon was desirous of his half-sister Tamar and he ended up raping her. And then that engaged or incurred the wrath of older brother Absalom. And then he, you know, avenged his sister. 
that was, you know, it was a terrible thing that happened, but even more so under that law, it, whenever you consider that the law condemned Amnon even being able to have any relations whatsoever with her. I mean, he wouldn't be able to marry her in a legal sense, even if she were consent, even if she consented to it or, or whatever else. But even in a similar vein to believers marrying non-believers, a lot of times incestuous marriages would be allowed to continue, while in other times it was declared that it needed to stop. But there's a lot of debate over that. Yeah, and it and it is, and this is interesting. Once again, the Bible is not always black and white. In fact, in most cases, I don't believe it is at all. So, for for example, you have John. Okay, this is the passage a lot of people are familiar with. He, uh, I'm talking about John the Baptist, who the the old woolly man. He came in and he rebuked Herod because Herod had married his brother Philip's wife. We see this from Matthew 14:4, Mark 6:18, and Luke 3:19 through 20. So. Because of that example, many believe that John was demanding that Herod and Herodias divorce because he had married his brother's wife. Now, while this is a possible explanation, there are other Bible students and scholars and commentaries who disagree because of this. The law that when someone sinned by marrying their brother's wife taught that the punishment would be that they would be cursed and not be able to have children. That's found in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21. So interestingly enough, nothing is ever said about divorce if you do marry your brother's wife. And furthermore, some people want to point out the language because it's the the present tense. It's, you know, John, it looks like continue just rebuking him for this. Well, the language that John used to, to rebuke Herod is very similar to the language Nathan used to rebuke David when he took Bathsheba. And David repented and was forgiven while staying in his marriage. We see that in 2 Samuel 9, uh, 12, 9 through 10, and 2 Samuel 12, 13. And we're not going to get into David and Bathsheba right now. But the point I'm, I'm making is that Nathan was rebuked because he had taken Bathsheba to be his wife. And we also see that he was able to confess, and he repented, and he stayed in that marriage. So does John rebuking Herod necessarily mean that he was implying that they had to ab- absolutely divorce if he was to, if he was simply rebuking him on the basis of being married to his brother's wife, I don't believe so. Especially when you take into account Leviticus chapter twenty verse twenty one. But I know there's also another alternative, and I'll, I'll let you explain that a little bit. Well, there are some scholars that believe that the reason why John rebuked Herod was because Herodias was never granted a divorce certificate by um, Herod's brother Philip. And legally, she wouldn't have been able to marry another under Jewish law because I think we've made that point abundantly clear in the last podcast and in this one. In order for a Jewish woman to remarry after she had been previously married, she had to have a divorce certificate if she had left her or if she had been cast out or left her former husband. If she was no longer with her former husband, she could not marry another man without that divorce certificate. And by Jewish law, that was the law of the land that she was under as a Roman province. Their local laws were still in effect. She did not have her divorce certificate to to be free to marry another man. So Herodias had done, many scholars believe, the same thing that her great aunt had done. And we see this in what Josephus had chronicled about Salome. She was um, Herod's uh, Herod the Great's sister and Herodias's great aunt. And Josephus wrote about Salome and Herodias's actions being contrary to the Jewish law because they did not get their divorce certificates. So Josephus says this in Antiquities fifteen point seven point ten. 
in regard to Salome, she sent him a bill of divorce and dissolved her marriage with him, though this was not according to Jewish law. For with us, it is lawful for a husband to do so, but a wife, if she departs from her husband, cannot of herself be married to another unless her former husband put her away. However, Salome chose not to follow the law of the country, but the law of her authority, and so renounced her wedlock. So Salome thought that in her position of power, the rules didn't apply to her. In her privileged position, she wrote a certificate of divorce. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that wasn't legally binding under Jewish law. Now, Josephus goes on to say this about Herodias in Antiquities 15, 5, 4. He says, Herodias took upon herself to confound the laws of our country and divorced herself from her husband while he was alive and was married to Herod Antipas, her husband's brother. So what we see here is a subversion of the law that they lived under. And we see that chronicled by Josephus, a historian that lived in a contemporary time and place who was privy to this information. He provides this information, and that's why some believe that that's what John is rebuking. He's not rebuking the idea that they had been married before and they had remarried. That would be lawful had a divorce certificate been given. What John is rebuking, according to the beliefs of some, and I think there's a lot of weight to this, is the fact that the divorce that took place was not lawful to have taken place. Salome, as a wife, had no right to provide her husband or to, to give to her husband a divorce certificate. That was part and parcel for the man only. Only the man had that right. She could have gone through the court system and petitioned the courts for a divorce. And if the courts ruled in her favor, her husband would have been bound to provide that. But she didn't want to go through that hassle. So she used her power to do so. And then Herodias followed her example. That's why it makes sense that John rebuked Herod because he is not, it, it's not lawful for him to have her as a wife. They were in an adulterous state according to the law. But whatever John rebuked him for, Herod nor Herodias tried to justify what they were doing and they realized they were wrong. Whatever the specific sins were in their situation, they realized they were wrong. They didn't try to justify it. They didn't try to, you know, save face or anything else. They just kept on trucking with it. Yeah, and that is what's interesting about this whole passage is, number one, it took place under Jewish law, and fairly early, because John John the Baptist, you know, he died fairly early into in Jesus' ministry. You know, John the Baptist wasn't a disciple of Jesus who followed him throughout his whole three-year ministry. This happened very early on, so this, this took place under Jewish law, and as you, as you made mention, in Luke 3, 19 through 20, it wasn't just one or two sins that Herod and Herodias had committed. Uh, it talks about John rebuking Herod for the multiple sins he had committed. So here, here you have a man married to his brother's wife. That was a sin. He wasn't supposed to do that. And the law says if that does happen, then they're going to be childless. Then you have a man who, who married not only his brother's wife, that was a sin, but who married a woman who would have not had her divorce certificate from her husband which, once again, technically by law, if this was during Moses' time, that would have been execution for both of them because she would have not had her divorce certificate. But either way you slice it, the point is is that this, this either has to do with incest uh, or it has to do with not having your divorce certificate, thus not being able to remarry under Jewish law. That's the context of, of this passage. And so... 
there's a lot of debate over this, but I wanted to go ahead and include it anyway, just under the ideal of incest, because I do think that at best you're going to have people who believe that. So I would rather go ahead and include it. Certainly, if nothing more than a possibility, because we're trying to be as exhaustive as possible, as you can clearly tell from our some, you know, what hour, 45, two hour session tonight. And they're probably only going to continue to get longer. But once again, these podcasts are for people who really want to dig deep in this stuff. And and, and that's what we're making these for is for people who because people who have gone through this stuff, they can't read enough material. They are constantly studying because they're terrified, especially if they've been uh, taught by a legalist or someone like myself who, who was a legalist of the legalist. And so I, I think that's why it's so important we're dealing with all this. So if you want to categorize it in a very simplistic form, if you just want to summarize what we just talked about, what we talked about is that. Not all divorce is the, resort, is, is the result of a hard heart. We see that there are good reasons at times to divorce, and sometimes the law even required you to divorce. In the cases of, of neglect, if you weren't able to provide for your spouse, you needed to divorce. If your spouse was taking you away from God, you needed to divorce. And in those cases, the person wasn't sentenced to a life of celibacy or anything like that. They were to just give the person a divorce certificate and then they were to move on. So if you want to summarize what I call the, basically the four exceptions in summary is number one, adultery, number two, neglect, number three, non-believers divorcing non-believers, and then possibly number four, you have an example of divorce for incest. And so, like I said, that's debatable, but I'll go ahead and just, just kind of throw that into that category. But here's what's really interesting, Lee. Yeah, this is the point that you've all been waiting for because here's what's so powerful. We have talked about this total with last episode and this episode. We we have about three hours worth of discussion on this where we've covered a lot of ground. And here's what's so interesting, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead. And this is kind of the last thing before we start to talk about Jesus. So this is why you guys have to understand leading up. We never see someone divorcing are being told to divorce on the basis that they were in a subsequent marriage after a previous divorce. We never see that. When someone was divorced, when they had their divorce certificate, from the woman's perspective, she could remarry. She wasn't told you've got to divorce and go back to your husband. In fact, before I I make a really strong point, there are no laws there are no commands, there are no examples, there's no implication, no evidence, whatever you want to call it. No evidence, biblically, but also extra-biblically. In other words, go outside of the Bible and see if you can find it during this time. And what you'll find is that this never occurred once. And I've heard people, they try to utilize Ezra 10, and they try to utilize the story of Herod and Herodias in the gospel accounts to try to build this position when that's not even the context of those passages. Sure, if you're a believer married to a non-believer, you might need to divorce according to Ezra 10, if that's the if you want to take that as a principle. Sure, if you're married and you're in an incestuous relationship, you may want to reconsider that. But never. I think you definitely should reconsider that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm from Alabama, so I don't want to offend too many people. <laughs> But but here's the thing. We never see someone divorcing or being told to divorce on the basis that they were simply in a subsequent marriage after a previous divorce. That never occurs. Not one single time. In fact, Lee, think about this for a minute. What the law does state is that if you have been divorced and you are remarried, you cannot go back 
to your first spouse. I mean, that's what Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says. How in the world have we have we come full circle to where sometimes the option we give is the exact opposite option that we find in Scripture? Yeah, and, and to me, that point, and we're going to skip ahead just a little bit to the New Testament, this idea of, all right, you were married, and then you committed a divorce, or, or you were married, and then a divorce occurred. And then you've married someone else. A lot of times people, myself included, would state, well, you need to divorce your spouse now to go back to your previous spouse because you didn't have a valid divorce. And like you said, we see no example of that in the Old Testament at all. It was taught There's against. No, it was taught, it was what, taught what, against. What, what people yeah. are prescribing as repentance was considered sin in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And so, yeah. so now... Well, Oh, go ahead. We, no, I was going to say, we don't see that in the Old Testament at all. In fact, we see the opposite, but we don't see an example or a command. And in context, we don't see an implication of that either. We draw inferences from what Jesus said and from what Paul said, but are those inferences sound inferences? Are they necessarily... Um, reflective of what is actually implied within Scripture. And from a contextual framework based on the context, I no longer believe that that's the case. And there are some people whose heads are going to spin to hear that said. There are some people that are going to oppose that. But from where I am, if I'm going to be completely honest with myself and where I have come from, based on my beliefs, based on what I've studied, based on what I have read. And man, like I said, I haven't looked at this nearly as exhaustively as what you have, but our conclusions that we've come to on this are are part and parcel the same. I believe that the position that you must divorce your spouse because you were married before and adultery wasn't involved. I, I believe that that is a false doctrine. I believe it's a destructive doctrine. I believe it's destructive to the church, it's destructive to families, it's destructive to people, that there is no good that can come of it. And we are going to get into that a whole lot more because there are so many arguments that I used to use, and we are going to go through that very exhaustive list, and we are going to pick them off and talk about them one by one, by one, by one, by one, uh, because this isn't just something we're throwing out there and saying, hey, we no longer believe this because it was too difficult or because we don't like it. It's because we've done a lot of study and we've come to this conclusion. And I know other people have done study, but what we're looking at is not what, you know, who believes what, but why do people believe what they believe? And the point that I'm yeah. making right now and that Lee's making is that before we even get to Jesus, these are all simply Jewish facts. Now, there are positions, and we're going to talk about them next week, that say, well, Jesus kind of changed everything. Jesus came and changed everything. He he reversed everything. So, Kevin, even if what everything you're saying is true, it's all for naught, because Jesus came and he basically uh, t- just, just really erased all that, and, and he taught uh, this very difficult, hard standard that everybody has to follow. So we're going to talk about that next week because Jesus did say whoever divorces and marries another except be for fornication uh commits adultery so what yeah. does that mean and we if can't I- ignore that we can't ignore that we have to drill that down and i would just say that if you're listening to this and you followed along with us so far even if you stand in stark disagreement with us even if you think that i need to be marked and cast out of the brotherhood or whatever else i would ask that just be patient 
listen and get the full story before you come to any conclusions. And if you still disagree at that point, okay. But I think in all things, we need to give, we need to give everything a fair hearing. And that to me is the best posture to take. That's what wisdom says. Yes. And so I just want to kind of summarize all this because. Yeah, we need to wrap it up. We've been going a long time. We've we've said, we've said a lot. So basically in the cases of adultery, neglect, intermarriage, and possibly incestuous marriages, divorce was considered lawful, moral, and biblical, and sometimes even a, a necessity in order to show compassion to, to people uh, and to be able to serve God. Number two, all divorce dissolved marriages. It was contractual. It was, yes, it was a covenant. That's true, but it was also contractual. The covenants, covenants really are contracts. And so we see that all divorce dissolved marriages. And so whenever someone was divorced, when the man gave his wife a divorce certificate, that marriage was no more. Number three, divorce, lawful or not, even if it did not fall under one of these categories that we discussed, always freed the parties for a remarriage with another spouse. And only the female would need the certificate because the man could marry in any case. Thus far, this has all been Old Testament Jewish law. So I want to keep emphasizing that. All of these examples and principles we've touched on from Moses to Ezra to Joseph to Herod, all of this has been based upon Jewish law, and I freely acknowledge that. So that's that's it's why— It's necessary, though, for a very important reason. Yes, and the reason is next week. We'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, we will get into it. Yeah, the reason why this is so important is because this is the cultural backdrop. This is the cultural undergirding behind what Jesus taught about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This is the undergirding behind what Paul taught. Jesus was a Jew who lived under the same law and studied the same law and knew the same law that was applicable to Ezra and Herod and Herodias and everyone else. And so did Paul. And that's what we're going to begin getting into next week. Next week, we're going to get into Jesus. We're going to get into his teachings. And that's one thing just to kind of let you know exactly what we're going to get into is what I, I've already, I've already kind of put some stuff together, and and for us to kind of just general outline for us to discuss, and it's probably going to be a two parter, just even even on Jesus, just the teachings of Jesus, because I want next. Well, next week we're going to get into alternative meanings to the exception clause, and even if the exception clause is textually legitimate, so we're going to get into that. We're going to get into alternative meanings, and we're probably going to spend a lot of time on that, and so we're going to. I think need at least two episodes. We may even need more than that to talk about what Jesus taught. Then we're going to get into what Paul taught. And then we're going to get into uh, the early church fathers. And then we're going to get into some question and answers. So we'll, we'll let this be as long as it needs to be because we've, we're getting a lot of good comments of people who have been affected by this. And uh, they want, they want us to go into as much depth as we possibly can. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. This isn't just some, you know, some, fly by night or, or schmarmy approach to, to theology. I mean, with a, with a subject this deep and a subject this important, it needs to be given due diligence. And that's the only thing that Kevin and I want to do. We want to explore the truth. We want to explore our faith as we ever pursue grace. So I think that pretty much wraps up everything that we have for this edition. Holy smokes, (laughs) almost two hours. You guys are patient. Thank you all very much for your patient listening. Um, Even though we went long on this one, please share our podcast with others. Give us a review. Give us five stars on the Apple iTunes store. Hopefully we'll be on Spotify this week. 
Um, we will let you know when we are on Spotify and you'll know first on Facebook. So follow us on Facebook, join our group. Um, feel free to send any questions to us. We'd love to have your questions. We'd love to answer your questions. That's what we really long for or and what we look forward to. So thank you all so much for everything that you do. Keep praying for us. Keep uh, thinking about us. We love you all. Thank you so much.